Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. My fun research project has more existential risk than I anticipated. Episode 117. PL timestamp, day 1411. Morning. Keltham wakes up. And now that he's safely no longer at the end of yesterday, with all his healing surges waiting to be used, and Carissa right nearby, and nothing else he needs to do before restorative sleep, his brain helpfully remembers that he hasn't gotten around to attaching a searingly hot object to his arm while trying to run detect magic. Though obviously he shouldn't do that right now. He has work to do today, and that might take recovery time afterwards. Gosh, it's like his brain is reluctant about this, for some reason. Next time Keltham has an evening with Carissa, he'll tell her beforehand to actually remind him about that. After breakfast and convening. So today he's going to try a lecture in baseline, approaching some of the mathematics of decision, as is more complicated than the simple cases considered under the law of probable utility. But don't cast comprehend languages just yet. There's a somewhat grim dark question he needs to pose to them first. He can't think of a very soft way to put this, so he's just going to say it. There's a risk on this project that Keltham is not at all trained to handle, namely personality damage caused by new knowledge of law destroying existing mental structures inside people that got built up by previous unlawful processes and were playing important structural roles as thoughts inside them. He knows how he was raised as a child, so he didn't end up in that state as an adult. He has no idea what to do with adults already in that state. Zero idea. Option 1. Keltham tries to guess a protocol for preventing this from happening, where at this point he doesn't know how to decide even between such macro strategies as try to snap a few of the springs at a time, slowly and gradually, and try to prevent everything from breaking loose until everyone has a bunch of law and recovery protocols, and maybe a core fallback and trained, and possibly a separate mental image of what a coherent person looks like, and proceeds according to that. Option 2. Keltham proceeds faster and with less caution, unless and until severe damage actually occurs to somebody, hopefully still at a fixable level the first time it happens, and then backs off and replans after that. Do you have any examples or anything? It's kind of hard to imagine, says Gregoria. If he had examples, then he would know how anything worked, and he would be less nervous. Keltham's actual direct experience here consists of himself getting an owl's wisdom and realizing that his previous life plans within Dathilan were entirely hopeless, and in fact he had enough data to realize this and was lying to himself about it. Good thing he was in Galarian first. And then there's Asmodia, who got an artifact headband put on herself, invented a lot of law, and wound up spontaneously relating to it in a specifically Keeper-like fashion. Keeper thinking has effects that people like Keltham deliberately don't get told about. Keltham does not, among other things, know whether or not it's possible for Keepers to fall in love. For example, Keltham initially thought this was probably because Keepers couldn't, and you don't want to tell all the non-Keepers who are in love that their love is unlawful. But on reflection, it's much more likely that the Keepers have some well-phrased blanket policy of hiding everything that might be like that from the perspective of non-Keepers so that their pattern of secrets doesn't leak information. It seems to me like it's going to be kind of impossible to be usefully careful without an idea what might go wrong. So we should go ahead until something does go wrong, and we actually know what problem we're trying to solve, Meritzel says. 
Uh, so it's supposed to be socially obvious, if only everyone here had grown up in civilization, that nobody here actually makes it obvious what their opinion on the topic is. They can bring up considerations the group should know about, but carefully saying it in a way that doesn't indicate whether or not they think it's a decisive consideration, or whether other considerations lean the same way. Then everybody writes their opinion on a piece of paper without putting their name on it, folds it up, and hands it to Keltham, and he jumbles those up before reading them. There's some further discussion, the gist of which is that Chelish people don't seem able to figure out how this really damages somebody as opposed to giving them a bad day, and maybe Pilar showing up with a piece of cake for them, but not... like... something terrible? So far, this is all sounding like... as many as several fates are known in Galarian that are worse than this fate. But if somebody ends up sad and depressed and failing out of the project, and in the very worst case going to hell to see if hell can fix things, and staying in hell if hell can't, then probably everybody on this project is willing to risk being the first person that happens to... Don't state your final opinion. Especially don't state what you think everyone else's opinions are supposed to be. But yes, the final form of the question could be... Are you willing to risk being the first person on the project who ends up staying in hell due to unfixable personality damage? Everyone will write yes on a piece of paper, then. He'd have more conspiracy worries about this, if not for, like, the Asmodeus thing, and Keltham having now ever met Asmodeans. Ioni, Keltham was kind of expecting more backup here. Ioni is not actually the type to tell people they can't volunteer for dangerous things, just to warn them about the dangers being there. It's when she sees people walking blindly into things that she starts scolding people. And the final question was about whether Ione herself wanted things slowed down for herself, of which the answer is in truth, no. Asmodia, you too? She guessed a few times about what would probably be dangerous to others, and was told by Keltham she was wrong a few times. Asmodia is now waiting on seeing concrete things happening that she can start to update about. As for the final form of the question, Asmodia's own personal level of risk tolerance has already been made clear by her various life decisions, not the least of which was signing up for world-wound duty after graduation, and then diverting from that to a mysterious, high-risk, high-pay, high-security project. Asmodia has tried to play a cautious game on particular occasions, but she's not under the impression that a cautious life is what they are all here to live. On to today's lectures, then. Everyone now cast Comprehend Languages. To begin our entry into what civilization considers the law of decision, consider this math-heavier special underscore case-rigged underscore demo treatment of the simplest cooperation-defection dilemma. Keltham's treatment of this, to actually be understood, is going to end up requiring the concept of a programming language, the concept of a proof system that can formally verify things about programs in the programming language and the assumable provability theorem stating that, in most proof systems, you can freely assume something is provable in order to prove it. That is, if something is provable within a proof system, starting from the premise that the quoted statement is provable inside the quoted proof system, then it's thereby provable within the system. He's drawing the cheerful cartoons that older kids draw to explain assumable provability to Dathalani children, because he did not in fact go back and learn any more serious-looking proofs as an adult. This is not at all a kind of math that any of these students have been exposed to at all. It's not even something they'd previously have defined as math. 
Judging by the looks he's currently getting, Keltham should maybe back up and talk more about proof systems and provability and quoting first. How's the whole baseline thing doing? From Keltham's perspective, he gets to communicate using precisely fitting categorizing words a lot, without that taking forever, but he's not sure how that feels from the other side of comprehend languages. It is maybe hard to evaluate how much of this lesson being very confusing is the baseline and how much is the subject matter. All right. Let's see what happens if he tries doing this next part in Taldane. 30 to 40 minutes later, students comprehend languages start running out. It's not particularly clear that it was really helping. He wonders if something different happens if he tries share language. Baseline. That would be an inconvenient thing to have to be super helpful. Only Keltham can cast it, and he doesn't have enough two ND circle spells to tap the whole class, even if he borrows against third and fourth spells. Share language, communal, 3RD circle, will let Keldum divide up 24 hours in one-hour increments among any number of recipients by touch. With eight of them, that's three hours each. Is there a reason Ioni didn't mention this spell when Keltham told everyone yesterday to prepare Comprehend Languages today? Because it makes sense to test Comprehend Languages first? It's easier to get more of that than more of Share Language, baseline, if Keltham is trying to teach more people. Don't assume that Keltham's actions make sense. This is a dangerous assumption. He's an alien. Well, onward, his brave researchers. Some considerable amount of struggle, and a number of foxes' cunnings and owls' wisdoms later, the class maybe, possibly understands how, if you had crisp, formal agents, let cooperate bot, equal sign, cooperate, let defect bot, equal sign, defect, let fair bot, x, equal sign, if provable, x fair bot, equal sign, equal sign cooperate. Then cooperate else defect, then fair bot, fair bot, equal sign, equal sign, cooperate. Because of assumable provability, if you assume provable, fair bot, fair bot, equal sign, equal sign, cooperate. Then it would follow that, fair bot, fair bot, equal sign, equal sign, cooperate. Therefore, fair bot, fair bot, equal sign, equal sign, cooperate. Now this is obviously not a shadow of the law they seek, because Fairbot, cooperate bot, equal sign, equal sign, cooperate. Even Keltham doesn't cooperate with a rock that has cooperate written on it. It's not a person. It definitely violates the assumption that the agent only seeks to earn as many coppers for itself as possible and doesn't care about fairness. That's why this is called Fairbot and not Copperbot. We want law describing a... Why are we calling them bot that cooperates with fairbot, but not with cooperate bot? And there'd be other cases, but that'd be a start. Uh, robot is what civilization calls. Civilization's equivalent of golems is what I'd like to say. Except I know nothing about golems except that robot translates to that. The bot suffix as translated is literally the final syllable of Taldane's word for golem. And we don't literally have robots doing this, probably not literally golems either. It's just the name for a very simple thing that is pretending to be a person by following very simple rules, if that makes sense. In this case, we're not so much looking for a new piece of law. The law we're going to use is just assumable provability, which almost always ends up true of any proof system you're not deliberately keeping it out of. We're looking for a bot under that law. We're looking for a bot that mutually cooperates with itself, mutually cooperates with fair bot, defects against defect bot, and defects against cooperate bot. 
This is the simplest bot that we could say is acting like a shadow inside this simpler realm of a bigger and more complicated sane agent that seeks as much copper as possible. That bot is made out of pieces, like the pieces I've already shown you, plus one more. The final piece you need is the Provable 1 predicate, where... Let the statement represented by Provable 1 of X be defined as the statement, it is provable that if it's not provable that 0 equals 1, then X holds. And what this means is that it describes what you can prove assuming that the base system is consistent, that it never proves both a statement and its opposite. In this case, what it means is that Provable 1, but not Provable, can prove, for example, that Fairbot does not cooperate with DefectBot. You might say that Provable 1 is the proof system that trusts Provable. This matters, because you need the extra assumption that provable is consistent to derive inside provable that, just because DefectBot always defects, there's no proof inside provable that DefectBot cooperates. They're lost again. The backing up and the explaining again, and the intelligence enhancement spells will continue until understanding has been achieved. Eventually, he writes out the formula, let prudentbot x equal sign if provable. x prudentbot equal sign equal sign cooperate. Then, if provable 1, x defect bot, equal sign, equal sign, defect. Then cooperate, else defect, else defect. And let's everyone go to lunch, a minute or two dozen late. It's good to know that you did not, yesterday, assign us a problem we were in danger of actually solving well enough to take Doth Ilani oaths. Yes, that is correct. Had I given these lectures in their more intended order, it might perhaps have been more obvious that this was the case. We aren't even using the correct fragment of law for doing that. This is more like using a lesser law that's a shadow of that one, the law of what you can prove about proof systems, and not the law of what you can guess about the math that the proof systems are about. That would have seriously been easier to say in Bayes' line. Oh well. When do we learn the actual law we'd need? I was going to say, when you otherwise strike me as being at around the corresponding level of Dathalani adulthood. But now that I think about it, you don't actually need real oaths for much. You've got the whole break an oath go to Abaddon thing and truth spells. That covers a lot of the same territory. I guess at some point Galarian civilization has to know it. But I can see it being a keeper thing instead of an average citizen thing. What actually happens if you break a real oath? There's only one copy of the real oath. Anytime that anybody anywhere breaks it, people over literally all of reality, the greater everywhere, everything that there is, become a little less able to trust it. Also, in Galarian terms, Asmodeus is probably now really, really, really pissed at you, and requests the entire country of Cheliax to drop whatever else it's doing, and turn you into a statue so you can't ever do it again, including in an afterlife. Though that part is just a guess. I don't think you should teach people how to do that. I really, really don't think you should teach people how to do that. If you've got enough people running around as smart as moderately smart Dathalani, some of them will figure it out. Civilization did. Hence, again, the Keepers. Fuck this. I'm joining your Keeper classes. Someone in there needs to be the responsible officer about this sort of thing. Called it with 85% probability. What do they do to people who break oaths in Dathalan? I don't seem to know, now that you ask that. I know that low-ranked keepers have sworn 13 million oaths over the last 40 years, and broken 23 of those, and that most but not all of those cases were due to insanity. I don't know what happened to them, and don't see a simple way of deducing what the ethical theory of that would be. 
but it would not involve threats, punishments, attempts to scare anybody off doing it again. If what happens to them is that they get put directly into cryonic suspension, so they can't do it again, and eventually the future decides what to do with them, maybe we wouldn't be told about that. Exactly, so that it didn't sound like a threat. The Abaddon thing is sort of sad, you know? People shouldn't think that's needed. Shouldn't think that's how oaths work. It's not why I would keep an oath. It's why people who aren't going to believe any confusing math words I say can know I'd keep an oath. It bothers me only in the sense that Abaddon existing bothers me. Asmodeus is working to make sure no one gets sorted there, and if he succeeds, oaths won't be less real, except insofar as people will have a harder time believing them. In civilization, with rare exceptions, only keepers swear true oaths. If you have a job like that, which mostly you in fact don't, you employ a keeper or you don't start up. We know about oaths so that we can negotiate with keepers, so we can be a fair bot to them, if maybe not a prudent bot, and not be cooperate bot, where you just have to hope the other agent is fair bot instead of prudent bot. A true oath is between multiple agents, not necessarily symmetrically so, but each must know the other. If we didn't know the real math inside Keeper Oaths ourselves, we wouldn't be a kind of thing that can meaningfully accept those oaths and do something conditional on the oath. We'd just be a cooperate bot that maybe the Keeper would decide to be fair to. If in Galarian you have truth spells, and Asmodeus never clerics anyone who'd break a compact, and swearing falsely on law changes your visible aura in a way other people can detect, maybe you don't need any of that math, just blank people who make promises and mean them for older reasons, more human reasons, and when you have gods and alignment auras on top of that, maybe that's reliable enough and you don't have to go to further extremes. Though, now that I say it, in its own way, that also seems a little sad. Or at least what the further extremes would add wouldn't make them worth. People have broken the world wound oath. They execute you for it, obviously, and it degrades the World Wound Oath and the ability of the people of Galerion to come together and fight when the whole world depends on it. But I wouldn't expect that it weakens Asmodeus. It's not the thing he's doing. It'd be better for us not to have the power to destroy more than we already can. I see the case, yeah. It still seems a little sad. Like asking Galerion not to grow up. Ever. Well, now that I think about it, when you have native INT-24S wearing artifact headbands, they're just gonna know, probably. Gods and mortals will have to deal with whatever comes of that. Galerion can grow up someday once civilization is running it, and all the kids get educated properly, and there aren't lots of people running around who'll do whatever you told them is the worst possible idea. Are there in fact a lot of people like that? Not in Cheliax. Not lots in Cheliax. In, I don't know, Galt? Yes, definitely. Luckily, they're not very smart. I'll try to remember to avoid certain kinds of trolling, in particular terrible, terrible advice, while Galarian isn't its own civilization yet. Asmodia, if I forget, you're the one person whose job it is to remind me. She doesn't complain that she doesn't need another job because Alter Asmodia doesn't have that other job. Understood. You know what would be a really bad idea, though? baking a giant cake the size of the palace in Igorian on the site of that previous villa that got destroyed. If that happens, is it evidence for tropes? Yes, yes it would be. And 
evidence for conspiracy, I think, because it would be much, much easier to do in a civilization richer and more competent than Cheliac's, and the conspiracy world would pretty much have to be. Spoken like somebody from a conspiracy that's actually poorer than ordinary Cheliac's, but putting up an incredibly expensive front for me, so I don't realize how desperate they'd actually be for my knowledge. No, see... A conspiracy that's actually poorer than ordinary Cheliacs would have shown you the palace and claimed it was the home of a particularly vain count, whereas the conspiracy that's richer than ordinary Cheliacs didn't show you the palace at all. That's just some average-sized, glittery building they have for guests. Now you've got me trying to figure out what grimdark purpose would best be served by showing me a palace building of that exact apparent wealth level, and not only is this not what I want to be doing with my lunch— it's obviously what the conspiracy wants me to be doing with my lunch, so I'm not going to do it. PL timestamp, day 14, 11, afternoon. So has Cheliacs actually managed to get him any domain experts like metal refiners, steel forgers, existing chemists, road makers, spell silver miners, or people who can tell him about the current state of anti-epidemic prophylaxis in cities? Or will he be seeing what he can do to vinegar? using prestidigitation to try to make added bases more basic. If they've even got vinegar, food here is kind of basic. They have several of those, but suggest the spell silver miners go first. If it gets anywhere, it's by far the most valuable. The spell silver miners have brought samples of purified spell silver in glass vials in oil because it oxidizes, and samples of the sand that spell silver is most easily purified from, a heavy dark sand called monazite. They can describe their purification process at some length. The ore is washed with acids, precipitated, heated, mixed with salts, and then reduced with bone to get them in metallic form. You have to do the process repeatedly to get adequate purity. That certainly sounds like spell silver is one particular element on the periodic table. A series of chemical reactions like that is one that filters atoms by which chemical reactions they participate in, which goes by the behavior of their electron shells and orbitals. If this were a novel, Keltham would be figuring out how to get a known number of atoms of spell silver into some measuring volume he can weigh, precisely relative to civilization's known weights and measures that he would have cleverly recovered by various means, so that he could figure out the atomic weight, thence the atomic number, then deploy his encyclopedic knowledge of how best to mine every single element. Since Keltham has not memorized how to mine every element, he's not actually prioritizing figuring out which element this is. Questions immediately to mind. Which part of this process is the most expensive one? Finding new sand deposits? The cost of acid? The cost of labor? Is the purity of the resulting metal important? Is there such a thing as higher purity spell silver that's more expensive and useful for more powerful magic? Are there any other kinds or variants known of spell silver? Do they know that bone is itself mostly made of a mixture of two other elements? And have they tried each of those two elements separately? Can spell silver be magnetized? Anybody tried messing with this process by running currents of ordered lightning through it? Does magic get used on any step? What's everything that's already been tried that doesn't work? The sand is about half the cost by itself. Most of the remaining costs are located in the steps having to be done exactly right or they'll ruin your spell silver process. So, and ensuring all the ingredients are of appropriate purity and that the complex process is followed exactly right by someone with enough alchemical skill to notice if some desired result isn't happening and to tweak it along the way. 
The purity of the resulting metal is very important. It needs to be very highly pure, but it's a threshold. At some point, it's pure enough to interact with magic the right way. And past that point, there aren't known gains to higher purity, though also they cannot very easily get much higher purity. They haven't isolated constituent bits of bone. Spell silver can be magnetized, though no one has ever thought of that as particularly important that these people know of. No one has tried hitting their careful alchemical process with lightning. No, that sounds like probably it would make something go wrong or catch fire. Prestidigitation gets used to separate out the precipitate in acid, but you don't have to use it for that, it's just faster. Magic gets used to manipulate things while they're in glass jars not exposed to the air. Everything that's been tried and doesn't work is something they can happily spend the rest of the afternoon recounting. If the sand is half the cost, then fixing the rest of this reduces the cost of spell silver by at most a factor of two, which isn't very much by civilizational standards. Why is the sand expensive? Shallow, easily exhausted deposits, no huge deposits ever found? A factor of two would still be an enormously huge deal and make him the richest person in the world, probably? Monazite is mostly mined from shallow waters. It is believed to form in the breakdown of rocks, and, because it's so light, tend to be carried away to the sea, where it'll gather in places. You can find trace amounts of it in any given rock, but that's not very useful. Is there a known process, including a known magical process, for telling whether existing ores or strange new rocks would have spell silver content? Are there other known spell silver containing ores from which nobody has figured out how to extract spell silver cheaply and reliably, such that the current cheapest process is based on monazite? Or is monazite the only such ore known? There are definitely other known spell silver containing ores. They have on hand a yellowish rock that contains spell silver ores. Sometimes people try to extract the spell silver from them. Sometimes they even succeed, but it's much costlier than the existing process. Wizards who work with spell silver a lot can tell that impure spell silver is meant to be spell silver. And some of them claim to have the sensitivity to tell from rocks that have only a moderate amount of spell silver ore. Which ore would make spell silver cheapest? if extracting all the spell silver out of that ore was miraculously very cheap. Probably this rock here and their array of example rocks. It's chemically fairly like monazite sand, but a mineral? There's a decent amount of it, and it's not primarily mined underwater, which makes it easier to have sell-out paid employees do the mining. It's not favored because you basically have to turn it into monazite sand to even start, and that does take magic, and you need stronger acids for some reason. Rough price reduction in spell silver. If the spell silver content of that rock was extractable for free? It's hard to guess. People don't try to systematically mine it, and they'd have to start. Significantly more than a factor of two, though. Three, four, ten, twenty, two point one? Probably more like ten than four or twenty. That'll do it for recursive headband production if anything does, since half the cost of headbands is labor anyways. Do they know the actual purity they need on the metal? Like ninety-nine percent? 95%? How much of the process expense is getting the metal pure enough, versus turning it into a metal at all? Do they know if the impurities are other metals? More like 95%. Most of the expense is getting it pure enough. Only real novice alchemists screw up badly enough to fail at turning it into a metal at all. They have some jars with some spell silver impurities if he wants to examine them. The one guy is kind of emotional about this, not that a non-chellish person would be able to tell. Let's have a look at those jars. Do their contents look like metal? It looks like there's both some metal and some other stuff in there. 
that possibly means electrolytic refining shouldn't be his first line of attack. How much of the expense is acids of required purity, including downstream effects from minimum purity acids, making the process finickier? If very high purity acids of all the required types were free, how would that change the non-ore cost of spell silver? They haven't really tried a wide variety of acids. Failing at that stage ruins your materials, and it's something of stabbing wildly in the dark to find anything that works better than the recommended procedure, so it's hard to know if it'd be less finicky with better acids. Acids are quite expensive, maybe a quarter of overall costs. In the same fashion that the literate, science fiction and fantasy reading children of another place might know how to make gunpowder out of 75% saltpetre, which is that white stuff found in manure piles that seems to have a cooling effect. 15% sulphur, which is that yellow stuff evaporated from hot springs that smell like rotten eggs. And 10% charcoal, along with rules about mixing the powder to a dough and then grinding and sieving it. Most Dathilani kids who read Isakai Fik have some idea how to produce industrial quantities of high-purity sulfuric acid and purify the nitric and hydrochloric acids that are easy to make downstream of those. Well, he was basically figuring he'd have to reconstruct mass-quantity high-purity acid production at some point, so maybe that could be among the first things tried. There's also a pretty obvious idea for something to try instead of bone, if that part of the process is at all finicky. They've had the conversation about the crazy patent gratuity arrangement on this, where the project gets 80% of excess profits above 20% increase. And if they want to capture money for scaling production, like sane people, they need to talk to Chellish Governance or the project about that, correct? Keltham is aware this is kind of an insane arrangement. They're working out a more difficult, saner one in the background. But the project needs to capture tons of value, so it can reinvest in like 200 different other things that will need doing. That was explained, yes. These researchers don't exactly understand the details of the arrangement, but they'll report all their profits and pay what's required. All right. So if the final step of the process seems worth messing with at all, if they're losing spell silver from it, or it's finicky, or transforming the bone to a usable purity final ingredient is expensive, try burning seashells to ash and using the ash. That'll get you a purer version of one underlying component of bone that Keltham would guess is the important one of the two. Better yet would be limestone, but Keltham doesn't remember off the top of the head how to describe which kind of rock that is, short of testing out different kinds of rock to see which ones behave chemically like limestone should. People have occasionally talked like spell. Silver gets depleted in the process of making magic items. How does depleted spell silver differ from the non-depleted sort? The usual way of making magic items doesn't deplete the spell silver. The magic item will have as much spell silver as was put into it, and later you can pull it out and use it to make something else. If you make a mistake in magic item making, you can ruin the spell silver. And it looks the same, only wizards can tell anything is different, but it won't hold magic anymore. You can also do that deliberately, though it's hard to imagine why anyone would. Carissa, you looked like you were pulling magic out of spell silver from a distance, which Keltham would sort of expect to deplete that magic. Did Keltham just totally mismodel what was going on, or is that not the usual way of making a magic item? That is indeed not the usual way of making a magic item. Usually you want to work the spell silver into the item, which gives you the option of reusing it later. The way Carissa did it destroyed several thousand gold pieces of spell silver. There are use cases for that method, usually for making an item you can't work the spell silver into directly, but it's rare to be willing to waste that much money. 
Well, that does square with the rough amount of money that the Queen of Cheliac should be willing to spend on sex games. So okie dokie. Can you pull spell silver essence into, say, iron, and then pull it back out again, as if that iron were spell silver? Where to be clear, Keltham is thinking about questions like, Can depleted spell silver be recharged? Can it maybe be recharged with something else that isn't spell silver and used repeatedly? Can he make synthetic spell silver instead of mining it? No one has successfully made other metals behave magically as spell silver does, including by magically transmuting it into spell silver. It's not known to be impossible. Okay, but can you take a lump of depleted spell silver and recharge it off non-depleted spell silver that then depletes? No. Depleted spell silver might as well be some entirely different metal in terms of the kinds of things you can do with it. You can't charge iron, so you can't recharge depleted spell silver. Interesting. Keltham is guessing that they've never, say, compared a one-foot cube of spell silver to a one-foot cube of depleted spell silver to see whether one is 0.1% denser than the other, on grounds like, nobody has that much spell silver, and we don't have weighing instruments fine enough to detect that difference off a one-inch cube instead. But if somebody by any chance has performed that experiment, Keltham would like to know. They have not performed that experiment for both of those reasons. Also, even if it were true, they've never heard of any theory of alchemy where that'd be useful information. If spell silver is the kind of thing it sounds like, where you can filter it out using a series of chemical reactions, then spell silver has not always existed since the beginning of time. It got turned from non-spell silver into spell silver at some point. Unfortunately, at some point is billions of years ago inside the centers of exploding stars in processes that are beyond what even Keltham knows how to cheaply duplicate at scale. But the point is, spell silver exists. Most things that exist can be made out of other things that are not themselves. The question is, what is the cheapest way of getting more of a material? And this, for spell silver, is almost surely mining it and purifying it with acids. That doesn't mean Keltham isn't going to check the other routes before he spends a ton of time on cheap, high-purity acid. If what distinguishes spell silver from depleted spell silver is a tiny weight difference between two metals that otherwise seem chemically to be exactly equivalent, this means Keltham cannot realistically figure out how to recharge depleted spell silver. If it's not that, he should go on thinking. They don't know, so he'll go on thinking. If there were, say, a 10,000-pound mass of pure spell silver lying around, would there be any good way to detect that from a 100,000 miles away? From a 100,000 miles away? No. There are divinations for finding objects, but you have to be quite close, within half a mile or so. All right. For now, he'll stick to the plan of getting spell silver on planet, instead of trying to figure out whether this solar system has an asteroid belt. Keltham will ask a few more incredibly strange questions, then have them go through every single step of the process with ingredient costs and labor costs and success, reliability, and lost masses attached to each step, then ask about every other process that has ever worked for refining spell, silver out of any R, no matter how expensive that was, then spend any remaining time until dinner, listening to summaries of bright ideas that definitely don't work. Sometimes apprentices will get the idea that you can use prestidigitation to separate out the spell silver instead of coaxing it to precipitate in the acid. This seems like it should work, but doesn't. The bones of lots of different animals and people have been tried in case some bones have more potent alchemical properties than others, 
but they don't seem to. Prayer does not help. Replacing acid with fire seems like it should obviously work, but does not. Having the work carried out by holy men doesn't make it more efficient. And so on in this vein, because the set of things you try from a Galarian worldview are mostly not the set you try from a Dathilani worldview. Message to Carissa. These people are not trying the things a Dath Ilani would try, and you should continue to be terrified of hypothetical corrupted Keltham's supervillainy. He doesn't particularly notice the part about trying bones from different people. You could get those in civilization, too, for a price, so long as you weren't trying to get skulls. Actual human skulls are famous for only being in museums, in sections screened off by competence tests, with very somber stories attached to each. Noted. They all seem like perfectly reasonable things to try to her. Dinner time seems to have arrived. A uh, security question. Do these people get invited to dinner? Or Keltham says bye for now, and they should call him when they've tried the seashell thing, or he'll call them when he's got cheaper or higher purity acids. If he has further questions, he can ask those over dinner. If he's done, then they can depart to try the things he suggested. He obviously has an unbounded quantity of additional questions, but he was careful to ask his most urgent ones first. Dinner time is also generally, by the customs of his own people, a time for freer form conversation rather than focused QNAMP, A. Eh? Which in this case is going to be a little odd because of the security restrictions on what they can ask him. But generally, if they opt to come to dinner, they should expect more questions like, So what was your most interesting day on this job? Or how do you hire people for this kind of work? In that case, they'll probably just get to work. They're very eager to try the things he suggested, and the best security is not thinking much about things they aren't supposed to know about. He didn't really suggest very much besides the seashell ash business, but okie dokie again. See them later. PL Timestamp, Day 14, 11. Evening. So you kept on asking about the prices of things, and it was incredibly obvious you were using some law. This law is one that I desire to know. Right now, not when you get around to it eventually. Any particular reason? From the way you're talking, it's really obvious all those prices are related by laws to things and each other, and I do not know what those relations are, and this bothers me. The conspiracy would totally need to know, to make up their prices, but you can't not be curious about anything the conspiracy'd want to know. You were surrounded by prices your whole life before you got to Project Lawful. You weren't curious about them then? No, because I had six fewer wisdom and one less intelligence, and didn't realize that law was a kind of thing that could exist, and was busy studying to be a world-wound wizard, and most importantly, there was not a boy walking around who clearly did know and wasn't saying. If everything about this relationship were completely different, I'd assume you were holding out against me offering you sex about it. I'd offer you sex about it if that was something I thought you wanted from me. Right then. This is, in fact, going to take a proper future law lecture. But consider the point that if there weren't equal numbers of men and women, or rather equal parental investment in men and women as a means of producing grandchildren, there'd be other strategies that genes could influence people towards, hence heritable strategies, that would yield a greater return on investment so it wouldn't be stable in the face of natural heritage selection. The spell silver makers are presumably trying to carry out their own process in the way that's cheapest per pound of yielded spell silver, which means that everything about it should also be the cheapest way to do that step, relative to their options, and there might be alternative ways of doing the same thing, but they should all be more expensive. 
Keltham may be able to figure out how to do some things with chemistry more cheaply or reliably, but this potentially changes which steps or ways of doing things are cheapest, not just how to do the same steps more cheaply or reliably. So Keltham tried to get information about more expensive alternative ways to do the same thing, in case Keltham knows some way to make those alternative roads cheaper, more easily than he could optimize the standard steps. There's also the basic point that before you spend a lot of time optimizing something, you should make sure it's an expensive part of the problem. Cutting the price of something by a factor of two doesn't help a lot if it was only 1% of the original cost. The prices are sort of like, how important is this? Or how much do I even care labels over the whole process, as well as implying things about other prices being higher if they were the costs of other known ways to accomplish the same thing. Where do prices come from? What do they mean? Where do any prices come from literally at all? Prices are equalizers of supply and demand functions. The more you offer to pay for something, the greater the supply of it you can get for that price. The cheaper you offer to sell something, the more people want to buy it. If you consider all the apples being sold inside a city, then the numbers of apples bought and apples sold are always equal. So the price of apples is the price that causes the amount of apples wanted to equal the amount of apples that can get supplied. Though, to have this always be true, you might need to include implicit costs, like if you want a special kind of apple that takes an additional five minutes to get shipped to you, the cost of the apple to you is five minutes plus some copper, not just the copper. Oh. Hmm. Asmodia will think about this, with boosted cunning and splendor, she does not say, and then probably return with additional questions. It is occurring to Keltham that if Asmodia has not previously known this, nothing to do with money or economics must have made any sense to her at all. No, it didn't. But that was less of a problem when she was just studying to fight demons and not trying to construct Golarian civilization in a way that wouldn't result in an endless series of disasters. Asmodia, relax at least slightly. Doing this in a way that doesn't produce an endless series of disasters is primarily Keltham's responsibility, plus the very serious people in Chelish governance. Nobody is expecting Asmodia to handle it single-handedly. Asmodia keeps her eternal screaming internal. It is internal, eternal screaming. The curriculum at school to be a world-wound wizard doesn't have... much else because you'll get a good salary as a soldier, and you're a minimum of three years away from doing anything else. Does Carissa happen to know whether Galarian in general has the concept of price, equal sign, equal sign, supply-demand equalizer? I think I've heard people say things that might have been more or less the same thing as that. I doubt my father would be taken aback if you told him that. Security, pass this thought to Savar. Then somebody who knows this stuff needs to be inside this fortress where Asmodia can ask them questions, and they should have been here four days earlier. Abadarans. The people who come up with and know stuff like that are Abadarans. I think Abadar literally chooses you if you think of it yourself. Asmodia politely requests any and all available books of Abadaran theology, now uncensored, even if they have to be teleported in from the fucking moon. Get them to her. Keep an eye on her to make sure they're not defection-inspiring somehow. That does make me think, though, she says, that it shouldn't work to ban high prices for bread in times of famine, but it does work, so there's got to be something else going on. That sounds like literally the textbook example of something that's impossible. 
If you impose a ceiling on the legible financial price of a good, it just adds on other inconveniences that are part of the full implicit price until demand decreases far enough to match supply. Yes, she noticed that implication of the thing he just said, but every famine she's heard of the country having the famine bans raising the price of bread. So like all the bread sells out in the first minute, and then everybody who didn't order fast enough goes to the afterlife. But at least the survivors get to keep most of their money. Or all the bread sells out in the first minute, and then everybody else scrambles to illegally rebuy bread from the fastest bread buyers at the supply-demand equalizing price. And fast bread buying is an incredibly competitive and profitable line of criminal work. Or people stop making bread and instead make wheat cake, which is totally not bread because it has a different sugar-to-salt ratio and therefore can sell at a higher price when, oops, all the bread they made earlier has sold out at the legal price. Sorry about that? Keltham literally does not see how some place as uncoordinated as Galarian could do this literally at all, or why they would be trying to, for that matter. She thinks mostly the bakers make the loaves smaller. But also, they do it because otherwise people will get very angry about rising bread prices and riot, and if bread prices haven't risen, they won't riot. And governance is regulating the price, per loaf, of loaves of unregulated size, because this fools people with intelligence 10, and governance has intelligence 16, plus headbands. Keltham is frankly starting to see why people in Golarian would be afraid of hearing arguments from smart people. Yeah, pretty much that. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.